Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of rape, murder, assault, and execution. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was October of 1961. 22-year-old Valerie Story had been in the hospital for over two months, ever since the most horrifying night of her life. On August 22nd, she and her lover, Michael Grigston, were attacked by a stranger. A random man forced his way into their car, held them at gunpoint, and made them drive around for hours. Eventually, the gunman killed Michael, raped Valerie, and shot her several times. Valerie endured multiple surgeries to remove the bullets from her body. Even though the operations were successful, an injury to her spine left her paralyzed from the chest down. Through all this pain and heartbreak, Valerie tried to stay optimistic. She did everything she could to help the police find the killer. But when a composite sketch and a lineup both seemed fruitless, her faith was shaken. She had to grapple with the possibility that her attacker might never be found. But then she received some news. The police had picked up a man in Blackpool who fit the killer's description. It was the most promising lead they'd had in weeks. A sliver of hope wound its way back into Valerie's heart. She crossed her fingers that authorities had tracked down the right man. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our final episode on the A6 murder. Last week, we discussed an anonymous gunman's attack on 36-year-old Michael Gregston and 22-year-old Valerie Story. Today, we'll detail the 40-year controversy that surrounded the crime and reveal the killer's identity. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On October 12, 1961, Detective Superintendent Bob Ackott flipped on the lights in an interrogation room. He'd been overseeing the investigation into the A6 murder, and he'd finally identified a main suspect, 25-year-old James Hanratty. James was arrested in Blackpool, so Ackott and another detective had traveled to the seaside town the night before. Now they were preparing to question him. Ackott was nervous. The stakes were higher than ever. A few weeks earlier, the police had spoken to the manager of the Hotel Vienna, who said a man matching James's description had stayed there on the night of the crime under an alias. When he checked out, he accidentally left two bullet cartridges behind. Ballistics determined that these items came from the same type of gun that was used in the crime. If Akot could get James to admit he'd been at the hotel that night, it would be almost as good as a confession to murder. Mr. Hanratty, 
Did you stay at the Hotel Vienna in London on August 21st? Sure did. Room 24, if I remember correctly. They have a great breakfast there, you know. And what about the next night, the 22nd? Nope. I headed out to Liverpool. Can anyone attest to that? Yeah. I was with three friends. Wonderful. I'll just need their names to check with them. No. Pardon me? Can't give you their names. Most of them have records. Wouldn't be very nice of me to send you and your pals after them. If you can't give us your witnesses' contact information, then we can't accept your alibi as valid. Well, that's unfortunate. Detectives felt sure James was lying, but a hunch wasn't enough to keep him in custody, so they organized another lineup. If Valerie's story identified James as her attacker, that would give police the support that they needed. 22-year-old Valerie was still in critical condition at Bedford Hospital, but nevertheless, she agreed to participate. Authorities wheeled her into a private room and revealed the group of potential suspects. Almost immediately, she recognized James. His blue eyes, as big as saucers, were a dead giveaway. She felt almost certain he was the killer, but just to be sure, she wanted to hear the men speak. Her attacker had a Cockney accent. She listened for it as each man in the lineup repeated the same phrase. Be quiet, will you? I'm thinking. 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 That last one, that's him. It was exactly what authorities needed. They took James back to jail. At his hearing a few days later, he was officially charged with the A6 murder. Over the next few months, James remained in custody while the prosecution and the defense prepared for trial. The prosecution's first order of business was to find a motive behind the A6 murder. The crime had seemed totally senseless, so they hoped that by looking into James's background, they could discover the roots of his cruelty, or at least a pattern in his behavior. James Hanratty grew up in London during World War II. By the time he was eight, he'd suffered through bombings, evacuations, and long periods away from his father, who was in the army. The fear and instability of his early childhood had a profound effect on him. Even after the war ended, he had trouble adjusting. His teachers noticed him falling behind academically. Thank you for meeting with me. James is... Well, he's a bit of a special case. See, he's quite well-behaved, but I'm worried about his performance in class. He's a bit slower than the other students. I don't see how that's his fault. Seems like you ought to change how you teach. He's the only one falling behind, sir. I think he might have some mental difficulties. What?! There are special schools for these sorts of students. I can give you recommendations. That won't be necessary. It seems that James's parents blamed the education system instead of getting their son help. In 1951, when James was 15, he left school altogether. Classes had added much-needed structure to James's life. And once he was out on his own, things went downhill fast. In 1952, he had a bike accident that left him unconscious for over 10 hours. When he woke up, his demeanor was very different. The once well-behaved boy 
seemed to go rogue. He stole his family's ration book and disappeared for four weeks. His parents eventually found him working in Brighton, about 50 miles south of London. He had collapsed again and was in terrible physical condition, so they took him to the hospital to be examined. It's unclear if the doctors found signs of a concussion or other brain injury. What we do know is they claimed he was, quote, mentally defective. Whatever James was grappling with, it seems he didn't get the diagnosis or treatment that he needed. From that point forward, he was essentially left to fend for himself. In 1954, when he turned 18, James tried to join the military, but he was rejected because he couldn't read or write. Being illiterate made it difficult for him to find a job. Now an adult with very little education and no economic prospects, James turned to a life of crime to stay afloat. It started with petty theft. Stealing helped James make ends meet, but it also gave him confidence. He stole cars and motorcycles even though he didn't have a driver's license. He broke into houses he would never be able to afford. It made him feel cool, even invincible. But then he got caught. In 1955, James was sentenced to two years in prison for theft. His confidence was quickly shattered, replaced by shame and misery. While in custody, he attempted suicide. He received medical treatment and recovered physically, but yet again, no one addressed his mental health struggles. And things didn't get any better after his release. James couldn't get an honest job, so he returned to crime. Sometimes he got away with it, but other times he ended up in handcuffs. He spent the next seven years in and out of prison. While behind bars, he made connections in the criminal world. More experienced men taught him how to select the best houses to burgle, evade law enforcement, and stash weapons. By August of 1961... 25-year-old James had the knowledge and desire to advance to bigger crimes. As soon as he was out of prison, petty thievery gave way to all-out violence. And Michael Gregston and Valerie Story were the unlucky victims. Now, with the A6 murder trial on the horizon, police wanted to make sure James couldn't hurt anyone ever again. And they were optimistic. It seemed like an open-and-shut case, especially with the help of James's fellow inmates. Coming up, James Hanratty seals his own fate. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, ParCast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. 
If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait. There are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. And now, back to our story. In late 1961, 25-year-old James Hanratty sat in custody at Brixton Prison, waiting to go to trial. He ought to have been silently biding his time, but instead, he was bragging to a fellow inmate, Roy Langdale. Hey, did you hear about what Hanratty told Roy? That he committed the A6 murder? Yeah, just another guy running his mouth, if you ask me. Why? You believe him? Of course I do. He had details about it. Stuff that wasn't even in the papers. So what? He could have been making it up. The guy wants attention. Seems like the guy wants to get convicted. The way he's running his mouth. A prison warden overheard this conversation and passed the information along to the police. James Hanratty was giving jailhouse confessions. And before long, one of James's friends, Charles France, told officers that James said the best place to hide stolen goods was under a bus seat. This was, of course, exactly where the A6 killer's gun had been found. By the time James's trial began on January 22nd, the prosecution had mountains of evidence against him but he still pled not guilty to all charges. James was in for a major reality check. Prosecutor Graham Stanwyck outlined the Crown's case in his opening statement. Then Valerie approached the stand in her wheelchair. She looked frail but determined. It was abundantly clear how much she'd been through, and her strength immediately won jurors over. Throughout two days of testimony, Valerie made her case against the killer. When you picked James Hanratty out of that lineup, were you certain you chose the right man? Yes. Remember, if James is convicted, he faces the death penalty. So, as you look at him today, do you have any doubt that he is guilty? I have no doubt whatsoever. James realized his chances of walking away free were growing slim. So he took action on his own behalf. He whispered to his lawyer, Michael Sherrard. Michael, Michael, I want to tell you something. What is it? We're back from break in a moment. I wasn't in Liverpool, like I said. What? My alibi. It's wrong. I was actually in North Wales at a bed and breakfast. James... It's not a good idea to change your alibi in the middle of your trial. It makes you seem like a liar. Well, I want to do it anyway. This is my real alibi. (sighs) At James's request, Michael submitted the change of alibi to the court. He did his best to prove James was in real Wales on the night of August 22, 1961. He contacted the landlady of the bed and breakfast, and she admitted a man matching James's description had been there around that time. But she couldn't guarantee it was James Hanratty, and she wasn't able to remember the exact day he'd been there. 
At this point, it seemed like James had lied about his alibi not once, but twice, which only made him look more suspicious. James's lawyer was more desperate than ever. All Michael could think to do was cast blame on someone else. Detective Superintendent Ackard, you already detained a man called Peter Lewis Alphon in relation to these crimes, is that correct? We investigated him, yes. Peter was held in custody, during which time you spoke out about your certainty that he was guilty. No, I never spoke with certainty. Well, you strongly suggested it. At the time, the evidence pointed in that direction. But did it? Valerie had offered a description of her attacker, which Peter barely fit. You held a lineup and she didn't select him. She selected an entirely different person, a man you knew to be innocent. And yet, you went on to falsely accuse Peter of this crime and you expect the jury to believe the testimony of a woman who clearly can't be trusted. It was a low dig, an obvious attempt to undercut Valerie's legitimacy. When the trial came to a close on February 17th, Michael was left wondering if he'd done enough to save his client's life. While the jury deliberated over the next 10 hours, news of the trial reached far and wide. A rift grew across England. Some people thought James was guilty, while others believed Valerie had once again identified the wrong man. Meanwhile, a crowd of almost 700 people gathered outside the courthouse, eager to hear James's fate. As for James, his skin was ashen and his eyes were bloodshot as he waited for his sentence. The foreman stepped up and a hush fell over the courtroom. The man announced that James had been found guilty of murder in the first degree. His punishment was death. For a moment, nobody said a word. Finally, James spoke up. I am not innocent. I mean, no, I am innocent, my lord, and I will appeal. It was a Freudian slip, and it made it seem like even James didn't know the truth. And the public couldn't agree on his guilt either. As his appeal worked its way through the courts, some people campaigned for his execution, while others advocated for his release. Based on the fact that Valerie and Michael had been having an affair and she previously identified an innocent suspect, many Britons thought she wasn't trustworthy. In their minds, James couldn't be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And that meant James shouldn't go to the gallows. Calls for mercy rang out. People got their hopes up. Then on March 13th, a judge dismissed James's appeal outright. His execution was scheduled for April 4th, mere weeks away. As soon as the results of the appeal were publicized, James's supporters started protesting. His family created a petition for his reprieve. They aimed to get as many signatures as possible to present to the Home Secretary. In the end, they got around 23,000 signatures from family, friends, people who believed in James's innocence, and those who were against the death penalty. It was a pretty hefty number, considering all the evidence against James. The Hanratty family turned the petition in to the Home Secretary, Richard Butler. 
Butler had the power to grant a reprieve in a life or death case, and he was known to be difficult. Over the past year, he'd granted only two of seven. James and his supporters waited anxiously for word from the Home Secretary's office. Then, on April 2nd, just two days before his scheduled execution, the verdict was announced. After giving careful consideration to all the circumstances of the case of James Hanratty, the Home Secretary has been unable to find any sufficient ground to justify him in recommending Her Majesty to interfere with the due course of law. Continued pleas to spare James's life were ignored. On the morning of April 4, 1962, around 200 people gathered outside the jail and stood vigil as he was hanged. After James was pronounced dead, one man laid flowers at the gates of the jail. Four days later, 23-year-old Valerie Story was finally released from the hospital. Her recovery had taken six excruciating months, but it didn't make headlines. By this point, the press was largely uninterested in her story. They were more focused on the fallout from James's execution. Though the court case against James had seemed cut and dry, his death was extremely controversial. James's supporters, along with anti-death penalty activists, cited his case as an example of a wrongful execution. Over the next four years, James Hanratty became a household name in Britain. Journalists and conspiracy theorists alike wrote about the case, conflating fact and fiction until no one was sure where James's defense ended and the political fight began. Most arguments in defense of James rested on the assumption that Valerie's story was an unreliable witness, that she'd misidentified him and sent an innocent person to his death. At first, Valerie tried to ignore these claims, but by the summer of 1966, She was sick of being called a liar. Hoping to set the record straight, she appeared on the BBC's Panorama, an investigative program that was normally considered legitimate and objective. Valerie gave an interview telling her side of the story. However, according to author Paul Stickler, when it appeared on air, it was heavily edited. It portrayed her as a confused, misguided woman who sent the wrong man to the gallows. It was clear that many people still doubted Valerie's account of the most traumatic night she'd ever experienced. So she vowed to never speak publicly about the ASICS murder ever again. She retreated into silence and tried to rebuild her life on her own. But another man was about to pull the story back into the headlines with his own confession. Coming up, the real story of the A6 murder. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1967, Peter Lewis Alphon, the original A6 murder suspect, re-entered the limelight. Seemingly out of nowhere, he gave a bizarre televised interview about the case. So, Mr. Alphon, you're saying now that you're responsible, yes? That you committed the crime? Certainly. Why didn't you come forward earlier, then? It was self-preservation, you see. 
I wasn't just going to offer myself up to the executioner. But you let Hanratty march to his death. How did you feel on the day he was hanged? Well, I didn't feel too good. There's a level of guilt, of course, seeing as Hanratty is innocent. But, sir, how do you explain the differences between your appearance and Miss Valerie Story's description of her attacker? She said the killer was in his 20s. You were 31 at the time? I looked a lot younger than I was. Miss Story was very definite that the killer had large, icy blue eyes. Nobody's got large, icy blue eyes. You don't. But isn't it rather foolish for you to say nobody has? I've never seen it. I don't even know what it means. Icy blue. You've got blue eyes, don't you? But who's to say they're icy? Let me put it to you straight, Mr. Alphon. You couldn't have committed this crime. You're just an exhibitionist, aren't you? I'd hardly put it that way. The interview was perplexing. Peter had been cleared by the police, and now, four years after the fact, he was taking responsibility for the crime arguing against his own innocence. Less than two weeks later, however, Peter retracted his statement. Still, his so-called confession had stirred up enough public interest that authorities had to address the matter. In September, they released a statement to clear up the rumors about Peter. His original alibi checked out. He looked nothing like the suspect Valerie described, and there was far more evidence for James Hanratty's guilt. Detectives believed Peter Alphon was lying for attention. He just wanted to be back in the headlines. Peter soon fell silent, but his claims had done irreversible damage. The fact that someone else admitted to the crime, regardless of the validity of the confession, only supported the argument that James was innocent. The controversy persisted for years. Even celebrities weighed in on the matter. In 1969, John Lennon and Yoko Ono staged a performative protest against the execution of James Hanratty with James's parents in attendance. When Lennon was asked for his opinion on the case, he said he didn't know whether James was guilty or innocent. He was just against killing. Over the next 30 years, the controversy went on. Meanwhile, forensic science was continually refined. In the 1980s, DNA testing became more mainstream and accessible. It offered certainty in newer crimes and in highly disputed cold cases. In 1999, James's mother and brother provided DNA samples for experts to compare to the traces of DNA found in Valerie Story's underwear. It was a match. The results were overwhelming. The odds that the crime scene DNA belonged to James were 2.5 million to one. To make their case even more airtight, authorities exhumed James's body took a sample of his actual DNA, and compared it to the evidence. Once again, it was a match, and confirmed with absolute certainty that James was the A6 killer. But even with the proof right in front of them, some people still campaigned to clear James's name. They claimed the original evidence could have somehow been compromised. These arguments were unsubstantiated and impossible to prove, 
Eventually, the press stopped reporting on the case, and the matter was finally put to rest. Through these decades of controversy, Valerie had remained tight-lipped. Behind closed doors, she read what was published about the case. Sometimes she detailed her reactions to the articles. She also made a point of writing down her account, the true story of the A6 murder. After Valerie's death in 2016, at the age of 77, her notes were preserved by a faithful friend. They were passed on to Paul Stickler, a former police officer who now researches historical murders. In August of 2021, he published The Long Silence, an account of the A6 murder from Valerie's point of view. He described the crime exactly as Valerie had experienced it, revealing new details only she could have known. On the evening of August 22, 1961, Valerie and Michael went to a pub in Taplow called the Old Station Inn, about 27 miles from London. After each having a drink, they hopped into Michael's gray Morris Minor and drove to a cornfield about two miles away. Many people assumed Valerie and Michael pulled over to engage in some intimate activity. While they had done that before, this time, the truth was far less salacious. They were simply discussing their relationship. I'm worried, Val. How do I know we're going to work out? How do I know I'm not throwing away my marriage and my life for a relationship that won't last? You don't. All we can count on is that we're in love and we're happy when we're together. That's enough, isn't it? I think so. I do love you. What was that? I don't know. I can't really see. It's too dark. It looks like a man. What if it's a farmer? Maybe we're on his land. This is a hold-up. I'm a desperate man. Hand over your keys. The window was only open a few inches. James stuck his revolver through the gap. In shock, Michael gave him the keys. James grabbed them and slid into the back seat. To Valerie and Michael, he didn't look like a desperate man. He was dressed in a nice, clean suit. The only thing that raised suspicion was the handkerchief tied around the lower half of his face. Face forward, both of you. Hand over all your valuables. I want your wallets, your watches, your jewelry, all of it. Valerie and Michael did as James asked, but Valerie also kept a few pound notes for herself. She was already worried James might attack them and figured she could use the extra money to bribe him later on. While James gathered Valerie and Michael's things, he started rambling about how hungry he was. He kept vacillating between telling them he was starving and repeating that there was still plenty of time left. Plenty of time for what, sir? I've been living rough. I haven't eaten in two days. I said that, didn't I? You did. Perhaps we could take you somewhere to get a bite to eat? Would that be good? I don't know. We'll give you the car. Yes, why don't you take the car to go get yourself some food? Be quiet, will ya? I'm thinking. James forced Valerie and Michael to sit in the car for two hours. Finally, around 11.30 p.m., 
he ordered Michael to drive around aimlessly. At some point, Michael flashed the brake lights to alert passing cars that they were in trouble, but no one got the message. The couple realized that if they were ever going to get out of this, they'd have to help themselves. Just out of James's earshot, they tried to make a plan. We might pass a police car, or even an officer walking down the street. How do we get his attention? I'll tell you how. We'll drive right at him. But how? I'll pretend the steering wheel's not working. We'll pull off the road right next to the police car. So be prepared and be on the lookout. But they never saw any officers. Eventually, James directed them up the A6 towards Clop Hill and ordered Michael to pull off the road into a cul-de-sac. They stopped right at Dead Man's Hill. James gave Michael a series of orders. Turn off the car, hand over the keys, and get him some rope. Still held at gunpoint, Michael pulled a length of cord out of the trunk of the car. James grabbed it and told Michael to take off his tie. He used it to bind Valerie's wrists, then tethered her hands to the door handle with the rope. Any sliver of hope Michael and Valerie had drained away at that moment. James wasn't letting them go. He was trapping them. James asked Michael to pass back a small bag he'd seen in the front seat, wanting to search it. Michael shifted, intending to do just that, but the sudden movement spooked James. He shot Michael twice in the head, killing him. Valerie, who'd managed to keep her cool for over four hours, started screaming. She needed a way out. She slipped out of her binding slowly and quietly, so James would think she was still trapped. She begged James to let her call a doctor for Michael, still hoping that he might be alive. James was flustered. He sat with Valerie in the car for 20 minutes, debating his next move. Finally, he leaned in towards her from the back seat, pointing his gun at her head. Kiss me. No! I'm going to count to five, and if you don't kiss me, I'll shoot you. Five, four, three. Before he reached the end of his countdown, Valerie turned her head so he could kiss her. She saw his icy blue eyes staring at her, eyes that she would never forget. James forced Valerie into the back of the car. He raped her with Michael's body sitting in the front seat. Once he finished, he told Valerie to drag Michael's remains out of the car. Valerie tried, but Michael was too heavy for her to move. They had to work together to pull Michael's body from the seat and lay him on the edge of the road. At this point, it was 3 a.m., and Valerie was praying that the worst was over. But James couldn't leave yet. He didn't understand how the car worked. He made Valerie show him how to turn it on and switch the gears. Go on, then. You should be able to drive it. I know that. Give me a minute. Uh, Here. I found, um, another pound note. Take it and leave. What do you mean you found it? You hid it from me. No, it, it was just in my pocket. James took the money and started walking away. For a moment, Valerie thought she was in the clear. But then James spun around and shot her twice. Her legs collapsed, and she fell to the ground. James saw he hadn't killed her yet, 
so he shot at her several more times. Valerie held her breath and pretended to be dead. Finally, James hopped in Michael's car and drove off. She was left on the side of the A6 for roughly four hours until a laborer found her the next morning. Valerie Story's fight should have ended there. She should have been rescued, treated, and allowed to process her loss and trauma. Instead, she endured criticism and insults from people who didn't trust her account of the crime. For 40 years, she faced cruelty from journalists and the public, so much that she chose to go silent. Valerie's story is emblematic of a larger problem. Too often, survivors of sexual violence are discredited, even when they remember every detail of a horrific encounter. In the end, Valerie received a sort of justice, but it came too late and at too high a cost. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on the A6 murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Long Silence by Paul Stickler extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, Joshua Kern, and Travis Clark. This episode of Solve Murders is written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Karis Allen and Abigail Cannon. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Drew Lawn, Brian Kim McCormick, Melissa Medina, Alastair Murden, and Rebecca Thomas. Solve Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, ParCast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Colts podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash Colts. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must-read. So, don't wait. There are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.